Hello and thank you for listening to this Youth Mental Health Podcast. Uh, I'm James Nelson, I'm a psychiatrist in the Trust and I'm very pleased to be joined by my friend and colleague Dr Mark Johnson. Mark, uh, thank you for joining us today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks James. Uh, Mark Johnson, consultant clinical psychologist with the therapeutic team for looked after and adopted children in the Northern Trust. Thanks, Mark. It's great to have you. And I know we've worked together for quite a while. And the title of our podcast today is Caring for a Traumatized Child. And as you mentioned, your working life has you involved a lot around children who have a history of being looked after or have been adopted. Um, and, and, and with our title about caring for a traumatized child, Mark, I wonder just to start with, when we're mentioning trauma, what sort of things are we talking about? Just, just to orientate our listeners to what we'll be chatting about today. So we're talking about uh, developmental complex trauma uh, and what trauma generally refers to is where there's a threat to survival in the face of helplessness. And for some people that uh, experience trauma, those traumatic experiences can be single incidents, for example, a car accident, uh, something that um, is very traumatic uh, and occurs once and is in some respects an external event. Um, For many of the children that I work with, uh, the trauma that they've experienced has happened within the context of a relationship uh, and a very significant occurring relationship. Uh, And because the the trauma is experienced through, for example, neglect or abuse, there is complexity in that and also in relation to maybe the frequency or severity of those experiences. So they're not just one-offs, that often these neglectful or abusive experiences unfortunately have happened many times over the formative stages of a child's early development. And as a result, then the impact often is complex and needs to be thought about in terms of how we use then the healing aspect of relationships to help. Thanks for that, uh, helping us set the scene there, Mark. And um, then maybe to broaden this out a little bit, uh, do you think that parenting or caring for young people who've had that sort of complicated traumatic background, is caring for them different than caring for uh, children with more normal backgrounds? Or, or to put that question another way, do, do normal parenting strategies work here or, or is it different? So I think it's important to say that there are various strands of uh, normal parenting, to use that phrase, that do apply to also parenting children who have experienced uh, complex or developmental trauma. Um, Children in those circumstances still require consistency and predictability, physical availability, and uh, you know protectiveness in the same uh, respects as a as a normally developed child without those experiences would also require for uh, for children who have experienced complex developmental trauma there's additional things that um, are important to think about Uh, one is that their trust in adult availability and adult caregiving has been impacted upon So thinking about how to, um, I suppose, change the viewpoint, which is often unconscious, that they have um, around not being able to trust adults uh, to make decisions for them and to relate to them in a predictable, productive way. Another thing that 
children in such circumstances experience is difficulties with intersubjectivity. And that's a big word that really means that dance that exists between a child and a caregiver from birth. Uh, And what I mean by that is those thousands of interactions that occur between the child and normally their mother that shows um, that she will respond to them in a way that ultimately they feel felt. And again, this happens at a, at a, often at a very unconscious level when they're, when they're babies. But a sense that you as my mother or my father or my caregiver understand me completely, understand what I need and are responsive to what I give back. And it's that to and fro of an attachment and a relationship that leads to uh, an inner sense of being understood, cared for and uh, feeling felt. Another dynamic that occurs for children who have experienced a range of adverse experiences, particularly in the first few years of life, experience and develop is a sense of shame. And shame is a really important concept to grasp when we're thinking about how to help children who have experienced interpersonal and developmental trauma. Because shame gets to the heart of children feeling that they aren't lovable or are responsible for those experiences that they've had. And it's got a foundation really in a sense of not being lovable. So how does that play out? It plays out in the sense of um, if I do something wrong and my caregiver tells me that I've done something wrong and need to change it, then they are really highlighting that that's about me and it's not about what I've done. For children who haven't experienced such trauma and loss, they are more able to respond in a way that says, well, I know I'm loved unconditionally, but what I've done isn't right. So the response to that then is emotionally different. So for children who have uh, developed without those adverse experiences, they are more able to, uh, when challenged about a behavior, for example, they're more able to accept that that challenge is about the behavior itself rather than about them and that sense of not being loved or not being accepted. For traumatized children, that can be a different thing. They can, they can interpret challenge to their behavior uh, as a statement that really says, you're not lovable, um, you're not acceptable. And you can guess then that the response to that at a physical and psychological level is profound. That's uh, very helpful what you're saying there, Mark. And it's uh, I think we're talking about really quite profound, complicated and important things, aren't we? I mean, we, we could probably spend an hour unpacking those things you've just mentioned. Uh, you know, about trust being impacted upon, how fundamental that is, that a young person trusts the carer, their parent. And if that's been eroded or affected by a past experience, it's huge. Um, think about that dance of interactions then that comes out of it, like you mentioned, and shame. I'm really struck by that. So if, if a parent is then kind of telling off and in inverted commas, you know, don't do that, that's the wrong thing to do, that could, maybe could quite easily be turning into, well, you hate me. 
I'm guessing is that is that kind of right, Mark? That you know, yeah, that that it's it's often an unconscious kind of then response that confirms their sense of unlovability. Yeah. So yeah, so being being told no or having their behavior, um, you know, identified as not acceptable, uh, can can go deeper than simply a focus on the behavior itself. It goes into their sense of self and sense of lovability. And then that kind of gets wrapped up in the shame of, of maybe a, a view of themselves that they feel bad anyway, that they've messed things up, even if it's not at all their fault. They mess things up and that even confirms maybe, well, you think I'm terrible. And, and then you can almost just picture the argument unfolding, well, you hate me anyway. And and then I suppose it's even more complicated, Mark, because isn't there a normal part of adolescence which sort of pushes away a bit from parents and, well, I don't like you and get lost. and But layer all this in around it and, yeah... This is complicated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, shame by, by its nature uh, isolates. So when you feel shame in relation to yourself and in relation to the world around you, ultimately you feel like you're the only person that has ever felt that. So it's a tremendously isolating emotional experience to have. And when you are in the early stages of development, that isolating effect is even more profound. And what we find then becomes a response to those feelings of shame uh, for children who maybe can't uh, openly communicate about their feelings is that you might see behavioral responses such as, you know, lying about things, I didn't do that, you know, uh, maybe blaming others, you know, it's not my fault, it's their fault. Uh, you might find minimizing happens, you know, sure, what is he worried about? What's she worried about? I only hit her, she's fine. Or rage uh, that comes out both verbally and behaviorally. And these are all really difficult uh, behaviors and presentations then to try and connect with. Because ultimately these kind of behaviors can make us as parents and caregivers feel stressed. And I might be jumping ahead a bit here, Mark, but um, maybe a parent or carer is listening to this and going, does this all mean I need to overlook all of that? So so let me flesh that out a bit more. Let's say we've got a parent uh, and they've maybe raised some of their own children and that's gone fairly well. And then maybe they've brought somebody into their home, maybe in a, a, in a foster setting or something, and it's all got really difficult and it's all very complicated. And they're maybe thinking, hold on, do I need to then approach this child with a traumatic background differently do or, or is mark on that podcast telling me i need to just let them go with the flow and i don't need to put boundaries in and i don't like the sound of that you know that's about 100 questions not just one but but what 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 do you think yeah no i i think that hits at the heart of a dilemma uh, uh, that that many cares and parents face particularly in those examples that you're talking about james whereby uh, maybe they've they've used um, different parenting styles with their own children and that, that's worked very well and, and maybe those children even still live in the home and then as you say they're having to maybe take a different stance with um, a, a child who's experienced a lot of trauma um, and that hits to the heart of this I suppose sense that uh, connection needs to occur over correction uh, so connection before correction and that prioritizes the interpersonal relationship that you have with a child realizing that that's the fragile ground upon which everything else needs to be built that's that's the starting point 
So it's not saying that the correction part, so rules, boundaries, expectations don't exist because they are really important at enhancing a sense of parental consistency and predictability. But the relational connection part needs to come first. And, and this was really built on the work of uh, Dr. Daniel Hughes, Dan Hughes, who's based in America and uh, over many years developed uh, an approach called dyadic developmental psychotherapy that has shown, been shown to be very effective in um, therapeutically uh, helping in these kind of contexts. Okay, uh, um, that's that's helpful, Mark. I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm still imagining someone might be listening, thinking, okay, let's say someone's just come into my home situation and I haven't really formed a connection yet with them. So I haven't built that up, um, that emotional capital or whatever. Can I still put some rules and boundaries around in some way? Because I'm imagining they might have safety concerns. They might think, well, we can't let there be no feeding back. So if we any comment about that, maybe if things are just really, really tough and there's safety concerns. How, mm. oh, I know that's a tough one. I'm, I'm sort of pushing it a bit hard here. Mm. but No, again, again, it's a really important concept um, to think about. Uh, and I often think about rules and expectations slightly differently. So again, when you're caring for children who have experienced a lot of interpersonal trauma, um, really in terms of rules, you sh you know it, it's helpful to not have too many of them so whilst rules are crucial really rules should be based around safety essentially which is what you've mentioned so for example one of the best examples i can think of is you know you can't uh, come for a drive in the car unless you put your seatbelt on that's that's a rule because it's safety based and um, because it needs to be black and white really to maintain the essential safety of the child a lot of the other things that are often helpful within the context of a relationship should be expectations. So, for example, there's an expectation that you will come off your PlayStation at eight o'clock because that's around bedtime. And at times, for example, there may have been children that I've worked with in the past whereby they've had a really difficult day at school and that playing the PlayStation in some respects has helped them to regulate and soothe themselves for a period of time. And it may be that in the context of a really tough day when they need a bit more of that regulation, that the expectation may drop slightly to allow them, for example, to have an extra 10 minutes or an extra 15 minutes because you realize that that may be helpful for them. Maybe that's not the best example but it highlights that expectations can be a bit less black and white that fits in with the unique context mm. of what that child is going through. And that often relates to their ability to regulate themselves yeah. and connect with you at any given moment. Yeah, uh, I like that phrase you used, Mark, about connection has to come before correction. That's kind of memorable. Um, I wonder, do you want to say a bit more about that, about that connection and, and what helps build that? So yes, I agree with you, James. I think connection goes to the heart of um, helping children who have been traumatized to uh, heal and feel less isolated and disconnected because of their experiences. Um, again, one of the frameworks that, that Dan Hughes has very helpfully introduced is this idea of pace. 
So, so what pace looks at is really some fundamentals in uh, trying to connect with children at any given time within the, within the context of this. So the P stands for playfulness. And playfulness, as we know, is the child's work. It's so important to their developmental steps and developmental stages. It allows them to experiment. It allows them to relate not only to adults, but also to peers and to learn and develop. And that playfulness aspect of connection is really important to think about with caregivers in terms of when and how that gets introduced and built upon. The next element of pace is acceptance. And the acceptance part really goes again to the heart of shame and that sense of unacceptability because of what has happened in the past. So the acceptance element is about physical availability. It's about really uh, being present with the child and understanding that not being judgmental and giving them a, an ability to interact with you in a way that they aren't going to be shut down. Uh, can really be used powerfully in coming alongside a young person or child and allowing them to feel connected with in that way. The, the C component is about curiosity and this is the opening up and the genuine uh, desire to understand your child. Uh, that uh, needs to be used uh, carefully at times because the child might not be ready to open up so it's about you know pacing that and being able to just genuinely take an interest in what the child is wanting to communicate with you at that time and there's ways therapeutically that we can support people to open up such conversations as well uh, and conversations for example about past events that um, has been very confusing for the child and generally those kind of conversations can be therapeutically supported um, and then the E element of pace is about empathy and it is about the um, sensitive uh, empathic responses that give the child a, a real sense of being felt and understood in what they are bringing to the table in terms of talking about their difficult experiences, either past or present, uh, talking about their worries, being physically and emotionally available to the child. And, um, you know, th this may sound complicated, but a lot of this uh, happens within our daily interactions with children very naturally. And sometimes what can be helpful is helping parents and caregivers just have some space and time to reflect with another person to realize actually that they're doing a lot of this stuff within those daily interactions and caregiving experiences with their child. I'm struck that you mentioned playfulness. Um, one of our other podcasts in this series is is on the importance of play with uh, Deirdre Meehan and, 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 and she talked very movingly about the importance of that. I think that might be a helpful thing for someone listening to this who's maybe caring for a traumatized child that there's maybe a practical bit of advice in here. If it's all getting too focused on rules and arguing, um, sometimes just diverting off into doing something enjoyable I think you're saying, I see you're nodding at me, I think that might be a good strategy, you know? Yeah, and, and the other thing to realise is that even sometimes play can be can be difficult for, yeah. for children that have been traumatised, that, um, you know, their ability to lose themselves mm. in those playful interactions at times may be a challenge. Um, but yes, certainly, you know, finding ways with um, your child to... 
uh, help them to do so. Um, you know, there's the other phrase of, you know, uh, regulate before you educate. Uh, and there's that other physical element of play and realizing that, that to move your body in a rhythmic, connected way can really help to soothe and allow a child to then move on to um, talking with adults and connecting with adults uh, alongside that. Just to move back to something else you mentioned, Mark, there with the PACE model, you mentioned about curiosity and about past events and about discussing them. And there might be someone listening to this just wondering, is it good to try and get a young person to talk a bit about the traumatic difficulties they experienced? Maybe if it's someone who's fostering or someone who's adopted and they're just not sure, is that is that a good idea to go near that or not? Have we any thoughts on that? I think, I think firstly, what's important there is as a parent or caregiver, having an opportunity to touch base with someone such as a professional, even a friend or colleague, to be able to think that through in terms of, uh, you know, what current uh, issues are coming up for that child in terms of maybe, for example, they may be asking questions. They may be very clearly showing that they're confused about the events of the past. They may be blaming themselves uh, for different events that have happened, or you really get a sense that they're getting stuck uh, in the confusion of what happened in the past. Um, you know, many children go through, have gone through a lot of loss. So loss of um, connections with birth family, loss of memories or, or tangible uh, places uh, that have been there in their early life. So being able to connect with them around that loss is really important. Being able to move them and help them move from a position of confusion and distress into an experience of sadness that is shared and connected with is a really fundamental therapeutic step for children who have experienced trauma. And whilst being sensitive, it's important not to avoid that. It's important to come together as a network around these children to be able to think about how, when uh, we might help them to discuss such things. So going back to that fundamental really of um, regulate before you educate, what we know is that children who experience a lot of this adversity in uh, early life um, experience sensitized responses physically to stress. So what that means is physiologically they might get stressed more intensely and might be more easily triggered physiologically by um, things and events that worry them. So it's important to think about that in terms of intervention and supporting a child to um, be physically in a state where they're able to uh, confront, share, connect around those difficult early experiences. Uh, occupational therapists can be very helpful in that regard in relation to thinking uh, about what activities might help a child to um, get to baseline in that sense. Um, that can be through repetitive soothing activities like, you know, even as simple as, as, you know, having a fidget toy 
um, you know, being able to um, sit on a uh, exercise ball and move when talking about such difficulties. For some children, they may need, might need something more in-depth and programmatic around helping them to uh, calm down their nervous system and relax over a longer period of time before moving into discussion about some of those issues. So it's very much what the likes of Bruce Perry uh, would call this, this bottom-up approach to processing uh, that often traumatised children because of the physiological impact that the trauma and neglect has had on them. Very much need to focus on physical intervention first that helps them to reconnect with their bodies and to uh, gain, a, gain more of a sense of control through being able to both uh, regulate in the presence of another and self-regulate. And that can take time. So the important thing is, I suppose, to you know, seek discussions with those in the child's network, other professionals, uh, family members, um, not, not to feel that you're, you're on your own around the decision making. Uh, just a question in, in around all of this, Mark. Uh, uh, you're helpfully pointing out about the, the physiological side of this, as you mentioned. So, so just to break that down a little bit, I th- I th- if I understand you correctly, I think you're saying that for some children who've been traumatized in early life in a care setting, maybe, that physically they can be sort of wound up in the really simple terms. Maybe their heart's beating faster. Maybe they're more, more physically tense. And, and actually that's all going on for them uh, as well as whatever uh, emotions are going around for them. Am, am I getting you right that they, they can be sort of physically uh, tense and coi- like, a, like a coiled spring? Uh, am I getting that right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. That would certainly be, be my experience and, and certainly within the literature and the research, you know, I, I think it can go into different um, aspects of um, physical experience. So that can either be hyper arousal, whereby you have, you know, an angry, anxious, uh, very sensitized child. And then there's um, hypo arousal, and that may be where a child may dissociate, may shut mm. down, may switch off uh, in relation to their experiences. And that may be related to early experiences where they were very powerless or helpless within the context of neglect or abuse and that the way to survive that experience was to shut down and switch off that that was the best survival strategy at that time so a lot of this um in terms of a child's responses to stress that you may see as a caregiver uh, may very closely relate to some of those experiences that they had when they were very young and how the body and, and the brain uh, best adapted to that. The challenge then is helping them to unlearn some of those strategies through trusting, regulating relationships that ultimately allow them to open up and uh, both at a physical and psychological level begin to reconnect and uh, heal. Yeah, and, and just something jumping to mind there as you're talking, Mark, is that maybe if a foster care or an adopted parent is is getting loads of stuff emotionally chucked at them, in simple terms, it's probably helpful to remember a lot of that's not about them. You know, that they're maybe thinking, what have I done wrong? Or I hardly said anything. And 
and, and maybe the emotions at great force coming at them. I think in really simple terms, we're saying a lot of that could be stirred up from stuff that happened really early on a long time ago. Uh, would that be a fair sort of summary of it, Mark? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think a lot of uh, those kind of behaviours and experiences are ripple effects, if you like, from early experiences and strategies that were, you know, adapted and learnt to help that child cope when they were very young. Um, and supporting them to find a different path with that is uh, very challenging at times. I suppose it's easy to say to a foster parent or an adoptive parent to not take it personally. Much harder to do in, in, in practice. Um, I wonder then, Mark, just moving on, um, have we any advice for a, an adopted parent, foster parent, some, someone like that, who's finding themselves stuck in a cycle of conflict? That, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, it's like every interaction practically is turning into, a, you know, a fight, an argument, um, no matter what way they put it as a parent, they're just they're getting their head chewed off them. Um, have we any any thoughts on, on how to consider that? It's really difficult. And I think that's the first thing to recognize and, and acknowledge that it is really difficult, that, that the interpersonal nature of all of this uh is intense and um can be very draining at times when you're trying to affect some change and help this child to trust in the guidance and availability that you're trying to give time and time again so as the first element of that really what you're trying to do is is give some space and time to check in with yourself so uh kim golding who's a psychologist in england Um, has done a lot of work uh, in these times and circumstances to support carers to think about their responses and to try and break it down really into what she would call parenting in the moment. And the first step of that really is is noticing what's happening. So thinking internally, you know, what's going on for, for me right now? How stressed am I? What's the best response that I need to give right now? Sometimes that might be uh, saying nothing, remaining physically available, um, but also making the decision, do I need to step in right now or do I need to hold back and allow the child to vent and just listen, just notice what's going on for both themselves and myself. Uh, do I need to make any uh, you know, immediate steps in relation to safety? So if you have a child who's in a fit of rage and you're in the kitchen and there's knives around, then it, you know, a wise step may be to subtly take the knives out of out of reach, uh, close the drawers, and stay physically available to the child. So it's not, you know that importance of both checking in with yourself and just doing a bit of a scan of in terms of safety what needs to happen. The next step is really thinking similar to that. You know, am I regulated? Uh, how do I best stay open and engaged in this situation? Do I need to take a break? So if there is another parent or caregiver around, do I need to do a bit of a tag team here? Do I need to let them take a bit of time to support the child right now? And how do I also go easy on myself? So, you know, often in these situations, we can become very self-critical. Or we can beat ourselves up for maybe, you know, saying something that maybe triggers or escalates the child further. So being compassionate with ourselves in the moment and realizing that we're doing the best that we can at that minute in time is also really important. This aspect again of, you know, regulate before we educate, 
Um, so is it best at this minute in time to, uh, you know, get into a conversation and reflection with this child about what's going on or to try and, you know, lay down the law in terms you need to do this, that or the other? Or is it best to suggest that you go for a walk? And you don't get into the detail, for example, of what's uh, triggering that conflict right now. Uh, because what we know is that when, uh, well, when any of us, not only children, but when any of us are uh, very stressed and angry, that our capacity to think and feel and communicate is massively impacted upon. So again, thinking about ways that you can connect and regulate that child uh, by going for a walk, going for a drive, uh, finding ways to turn down the volume of stress can be very helpful. And that kind of ties in as well with what we talked about earlier around the use of acceptance and empathy. So, you know, physical availability alongside comments such as, I know this is really difficult for you right now. You know, I'm sorry that uh, you're feeling this way. I know you've got some really big feelings at the minute and I want to help with that. So things that recognize that child in the moment rather than getting into the detail of what maybe the conflict is around can be helpful. I think that's really useful and practical, Mark. And and, and just linking that to what you said earlier about there's a time to get into detail and reflect and maybe think about causes, but but that's not when it's all all kicking off. The, 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 when it's all getting, when everyone's up to high dough, that's the time for the short emotional connection sort of statements like I can see this is really tough right now maybe we need a break rather than that you know this is reminding me a bit about your experience seven years ago blah 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 am I getting you right about that absolutely there's a time and a place for those kind of conversations and often those kind of conversations are more helpful once the crisis has subsided mm -hmm. So yep. once uh, there's maybe been tears or when there's been a lot of anger uh, and things have calmed down again, those are the times to be physically available, physically close, uh, maybe with a cup, you know, a cup of tea or um, something else that helps soothe and regulate the child. And then that gentle conversational style about, you know, things were really tough there. And I'm just wondering, is there other stuff going on at the minute that I don't know about? Uh, you know, I'm mm. just wondering that, is there anybody else apart from me even that you feel that you, you would want to talk to about this? Um, so though, that's when the reflection part comes in. That's when the curiosity comes in and really trying to connect with the child's experience. Kim Golding, uh, the psychologist that I mentioned before, talks a lot about going the long way round in those kind of conversations. So really taking the time uh, to really try and understand what's going on for the child at that minute in time and not trying to rush that. And uh, given that the time and the energy and the, the pacing that, that that deserves. And and sometimes in those circumstances, the most powerful thing can be actually apologizing. Mm. You know, um, and, and sometimes that's the opposite of what we want to do <laughs> because we're feeling uh, stressed and we're, we're feeling where is this going. Um, but often the, the, the children that, that we care for who have experienced a lot of trauma, they've actually never heard an apology before. So that, that, that apologizing, that uh, taking a one down position and being curious can be a very powerful way of disarming 
that shame that we talked about and the associated ways of dealing with shame that kids have around, you know, blame and rage uh, and allow them to open up in a much more connected way. Once, once that has happened, once, once you've moved through, I guess, prioritizing that connective element of responding to a child, you can then begin to think about the correction element. So, so things around supervision, things around boundaries, you know, increasing your structure and supervision in those circumstances and maybe even uh, applying a consequence to what has happened. Um, so so th- that is the time when you might also think about consequences. You might um, think about, you know, for example, if a, if a games console has been broken, then there may be steps needed to be taken to be able to earn money to purchase a new games console or get that fixed. But always these kind of consequences need to be held within the context of that child's need to stay connected to you because it's through the connection that real behavioral change and and growth happens within the context of relationships. So repair is, I suppose, the final, but you could argue one of the most crucial steps to this, whereby you know and the child knows that the conflict and the rupture uh, that has occurred within that conflict doesn't mean that the relationship has ultimately been reflect been affected so that recognition that you know something has happened here that's been really difficult really stressful for us both but that doesn't make any difference to your and my relationship that i'm going to continue to be around continue to be available and we're going to be able to move on from this together it's powerful stuff mark uh in a in a complicated complicated area um but thank you for for talking it over so so helpfully uh, just one practical question if, if a parent um maybe an adopted parent or maybe someone in a foster parent role if they're seeking some extra help if they're feeling like i need some professional support around this have we have we any general advice about how they go about seeking that so many of the children that that i work with will often have a social worker involved in their life uh, that may be very infrequent contact. It may be more frequent contact and uh, support with, uh, you know, several different things in their life. So in such cases, the social worker would be a good first port of call around thinking about how to access additional um, therapeutic or professional support. Some children who have experienced uh, developmental trauma may not be directly involved with social services or a social worker. And in those circumstances, it may be useful to uh, go to the GP as first protocol, uh, explain some of the difficulties and see if there are other statutory or community services that may be accessed through referral uh, by the GP. some looked after children will uh, attend services such as ourselves and may also attend CAMS or other services in addition to that. So it's not exclusive that looked after and adopted children need to come to specialists looked after and adopted services. There's, there's a lot of other services that can be accessed both for them and their parents and carers. Great, thank you. And And I feel like we've scratched the surface today just on a huge area. And we've tried to touch on as many useful points as possible, but there's maybe someone listening to this who wants to read more, who who's uh, really keen to 
to learn more in this area. And you've mentioned a variety of authors on the way through there, uh, Dan Hughes, Bruce Perry, Kim Golding. Are there particular resources you would suggest parents might want to have a look at, Mark? Yeah, I mean, those key authors are, are very uh, prolific and articulate and insightful in their writings. And I would definitely advise, you know, um, looking at their texts. Um, other resources may be the likes of uh, Therapeutic Treasure Box by uh, Karen Treisman, uh, which offers some more creative, uh, pragmatic approaches to um, help with uh, looking at some of these issues alongside uh children who have experienced developmental trauma thank you mark uh for those resource ideas and uh thank you very much for taking the time to talk through with us today this hugely important area um and your your wisdom and experience on it is is valuable and thought-provoking so thank you for that and thank you to you uh, as well our listeners uh we've put a short online survey in the text of the podcast and we'd love to hear your feedback and any suggestion for future topics you'd like us to cover we'll also plan to put some links in there for some of the resources that mark has mentioned on the way through and we hope that you find today's podcast helpful